from the center of aerospace. And now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Hello. Okay. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you very much for coming, and thank you very much, Peter, for that introduction. I'm not actually a visiting professor at Cranfield anymore. I was about 25 years ago, actually, last year. Uh, thank you for that, and um, I'm very grateful to the Society for inviting me along here this evening. So, as Peter said, my company is called Through the Looking Glass, and this came about when, after my wife and I had been abroad for more than 30 years, we came back to the UK, almost as aliens, really, in this country. And uh, I didn't want to call myself Paul Clark Consulting. Too boring. So I chose the title uh, for the business, Through the Looking Glass. I'm sure you're familiar with the Alice stories, Alice in Wonderland. Lewis Carroll was the author of that. And he wrote this second book called Through the Looking Glass. And what appealed to me is that the story is all about Alice going through this looking glass and finding a crazy world on the other side where nothing made any sense. It was full of strange creatures and what have you. And I thought, well, this is analogous to the air transport industry because I've always met very strange people and nothing ever makes a lot of sense. Also, the book focuses on a game of chess, which, of course, is a, is a strategic game. So I thought that was a good title for the company. Now, what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to suggest that we all go through this looking glass and prepare ourselves for what's on the other side. So, Gigi, can you turn the lights down, please? Now, do you feel any different? Well, you look different. Honestly, some people do look different. So, now we're on the other side, we can begin to talk about the business of fleet planning and all the interesting things about it. When I joined Airbus, it was in the early 80s, and it was a fantastic time to join a company in its infancy like that. Because I was in the what was called the Airline Studies Group, a very small group of people charged with the job of trying to persuade airlines that our aircraft was better than anyone else's. And it was wonderful. The problem, of course, was that Airbus was this size and Boeing was this size. And when you're in that situation, there are just two outcomes. E either you give up and you fail, or you grow and become big. And obviously, we were never going to give up, and we grew. But in those early days, uh, I was charged with going to see the airlines and doing a lot of the performance studies, the economic studies. And one of the things that happened to me in my early weeks, freshly minted with my postgraduate diploma and certificate and whatever, my, my degree, uh, was that I had a visit from the chief engineer of British Airways. And he came down to Toulouse and said, look, <clears throat> I'm not really convinced that you people here in Airbus can actually calculate the performance numbers accurately. I'm going to give you a test. And I want you to calculate the fuel burn on a route. And you're going to do it by hand using the performance manuals. So I then spent about two hours with all the graphs and the charts and all the rest of it calculating the performance. I had a number. 
And then he said, okay, I now want you to run your computer with all the input data, and you will have to be within a margin of error, 1%, to convince me that Airbus and British Airways can do business. No pressure. I'll tell you later what actually happened, okay? But now let's move on. And uh, I want to talk about this book here called The Sporty Game. Has anyone heard of this book, The Sporty Game? It came out at about the time that I was completing my uh, postgraduate degree. And I read it and I was captivated because here was someone, an author called John Newhouse, who took the lid off the crazy world of aircraft manufacturing. And I was hooked. That's why I wanted to work for Airbus, that's for sure. And at some point, I, I loaned um, my book to a student, and he never gave it back. And just a month ago, I came across a copy on eBay and bought it. And I have the book here. This is it. <clears throat> and I'm going to just read the opening paragraph from The Sporty Game. And the author says, The business of making and selling commercial airliners is not for the diffident or faint of heart. It is remarkably difficult and, by anyone's standards, intensely competitive. What really sets the commercial airplane business apart is the enormities, enormity of risks. They create an array of obstacles to profitability which discourages all but the bold and the brave. A, a, a very, very good opening and something which I'm sure you will agree applies equally today. Now, of course, what John Newhouse is telling us is that we are in a business full of risk. And it's not just the aircraft manufacturers, it's the airlines themselves. The rewards are enormous, but of course it's a risky game. And <clears throat> so I just want to kick off by just reminding everyone of the enormous size of the backlog of aircraft which have been ordered and are sitting in the... Uh, order books of the major manufacturers today. So no great surprises there. Um, this is the, these are the numbers for Airbus and Boeing as at the end of last year. And we see huge numbers uh, for Airbus for the A320 family and huge numbers for the 737 family for Boeing. No big surprises. Now, <clears throat> if we were to add together some of the other ma major manufacturers, so the regional jet manufacturers, for example, and the turboprop manufacturers, the Chinese and the Russians and the Japanese and all of those, it's likely that there are around about 15,000 aircraft which are sitting in the order books waiting to be delivered. That's a hell of a number, isn't it? But what's that worth? Well, best estimate would be about $955 billion. That's about it. And that would be after discounts, by the way. It's always difficult to know exactly how many orders have discounts, but we know that practically they all practically do have discounts. But this is a, a reasonable guess at it. $955 billion. Now, I want to try to visualize what that really means. Here's a $100 bill. What can you do with 100 bucks? Not a lot. A meal in a restaurant? Here's $10,000 in $100 bills. Ah, now we're talking. Um, a, a room in the Ritz Hotel, a suite, for a weekend. I checked it today. That's what you can get for $10,000. What about a million dollars? 
that was a million dollars. And of course, I put my picture there to give you some perspective. I wish I could say that was my million dollars, but it isn't. Okay. It's a million dollars. Now, it's rather disappointing, in fact, because you could put that in a hotel laundry bag and walk through Hyde Park and no one would pay any attention to you whatsoever, right? What about $100 billion? Well, for this, you'd need an industrial pallet. What about a billion dollars? Well, for this, you need a truck. I think you can probably guess where this is going. What about $955 billion? That is what it looks like. <clears throat> and there I am on the left-hand side there. And please note that the pallets are double-stacked. Now, we've got to remember that every single one of those dollar bills is there in that pile because someone somewhere has signed a contract to buy an aircraft. And that is remarkable. And it's been this way for the last four or five years. In fact, if you go back uh, beyond that, in, in, back in time, you would find the backlog was much lower than this. So it's only fairly recently that the numbers have reached these stratospheric levels. So imagine that the value of the backlog held by the aircraft manufacturers were to be a country's GDP. Well, it would be the world's 16th largest country sitting between Indonesia and Turkey. And that's quite something, isn't it? Just to put these things into some kind of perspective. So now let me begin to talk about some of the challenges that I think are very critical in the fleet planning process because we've got to control the risk. And one of the big challenges we have is forecasting. Forecasting is something that fleet planners spend a lot of time doing. And regrettably, airlines have less time to look as far into the future as we really need to when buying a fleet of aircraft. So, here's another character from history. And uh, this one is Lord Kelvin. And Lord Kelvin is a very interesting gentleman. He actually gave his name to the Kelvin temperature scale. But he was a great thinker, uh, a great engineer and mathematician in the 19th century. And I, whenever I think of Lord Kelvin, there were two things which strike me. First, it's his rather magnificent beard, as you can see in this sculpture, the statue of him in Glasgow. And the second thing that I always think of is something he said in 1895. I can flatly state that heavier than airplane machines are impossible. Now, eight years later, he was probably feeling a little bit sick, don't you think? But the interesting thing about this statement is that it was untrue even in 1895. Because as any French person would tell you, in 1890, a French gentleman called Clément Adair actually flew in a heavier-than-air flying machine. It was a steam-powered machine which weighed about 300 kilograms, and he flew it, apparently, about 50 meters, and he was only about 20 centimeters off the ground. But he flew it, and the French are always going to claim that they beat the Wright brothers to the, to the act. But what it indicates is how difficult it is to look into the future, isn't it? That's really what I'm saying here. It's, it's hard. Now, 
if you're a manufacturer, you will have to have a 20-year horizon. It's the nature of the beast. There's a great deal of inertia involved in the development, the design and the production and the supports of aircraft. You can't change things overnight. So the decisions you make in terms of your product strategy, you have to live with you perhaps for generations. So we all have these 20-year horizons. And if you ask an airline, what do you mean by long, long term, long term, they will probably say, well, it's going to be maybe three to five years. And I actually had that experience once with Lufthansa at a fleet planning meeting. I was sitting with everyone, Airbus on one side and Lufthansa on the other, and suddenly people started using the expression long term. And after about a minute, someone in Lufthansa said, stop. What do you mean by long term? And we said, 20 years. What do you mean by long term? Well, about three, five years. So that is the problem we have. Now, airlines obviously focus on the near term because that is something which they can more reasonably forecast, but it's difficult for them to go beyond that. How can tell what markets are going to evolve, what kind of competitive situation will emerge? It's impossible to, to know that. And another thing that we have to consider here is not just forecasts in the market for airplanes, but also the price of oil. Because, as you will know, fuel consumes about 25% of total operating costs. And even more in some cases, particularly for long-haul operators, where that percentage could be much, much higher, even 40%. So if that is the, if that is the case, if, if, you're, if you're depending so much on the, on the price of oil, you have to have some idea of how much it would cost in the future. So we have to go to specialist agencies to understand that. <clears throat> and the one which most people will look at is the Energy Information Administration. And this is their 2019 forecast for the price of oil uh, based upon a 2018 baseline. And you can see that there's a high oil price scenario, there's a low oil price scenario, there are all kinds of other scenarios. And of course, it all depends on politics, on cost of extraction, on terrorism, you name it, obviously we know all those things. But the problem is that this forecast is practically useless because we just don't know, do we, what the price of oil is going to be. So that, that is very difficult, particularly when it comes to making a fleet planning decision because your business case has to be predicated around a price of oil and you have to select one. And this is the same for the manufacturers as well. You have to, to launch a new program, you have to be pretty certain what the price of oil is going to be to justify the interest in the, in the revenue. So that's another thing which we worry about. Now, another problem to understand the market and trying to forecast is that the pattern of orders is very uneven. And, well, this, this is a rather complicated chart, but it has a very strong message. So I'm going to explain what it is. We're looking at the history of about 17, 18 years there, um, 2002 up to 2018, and on the left-hand axis, we've got the number of units. That's aircraft being ordered or delivered in any particular year. On the right-hand axis, we've got billions of dollars. And that is the profitability, the net profitability of the world's airlines. And that's represented by the black dotted line. So the black dotted line is profitability. And we've got a red line there which shows the zero point. So you can see, looking at the black line, that in 2008, profitability took a dive, obviously, because of the financial crisis. And if we were to go back in time further, we would see every eight or nine years, there's some kind of an interruption to the growth pattern um, and profitability of the airlines. 
Now, what's happening here is that whenever the airlines are making money, generally speaking, they are placing orders for aircraft. And that has happened fairly consistently until recently. Now, as you can see, beyond 2014, things began to break down. Now, what's driving all that? Well, sometimes it's the natural replacement cycle, where aircraft, a particular type of aircraft, becomes economically obsolete after a period of time. Sometimes it's due to uh, an emerging business model, such as the low-cost carriers, and particularly when they emerge in Asia, you see a flurry of orders to capture these early delivery positions. Sometimes it's a new aircraft type, a new technology, for example, which propels uh, people to the order books very quickly. But if you take it from 2002 to 2014, there's a, there's a, a degree <coughs> of correlation there between the profitability and the pattern of orders. I say a degree, for statisticians, uh, the, the uh, correlation coefficient is 0.73. But after that, after 2014, it completely breaks down. And that coincides with the period where the order books have become completely stuffed with orders. So in other words, now the airline industry is enjoying a, a period of record profitability, but the orders have gone down very considerably. So it's, it's hard to extrapolate from that, which is why the 20-year forecast of the manufacturers tend to be beautiful, smooth curves uh, rising into the wide blue yonder. Now, the orange bars show the orders, and the blue bars show the deliveries, which, of course, do not follow the same uh, pattern. You can't change the delivery profile of an aircraft very easily. It takes a long time to do that because of all the investment that you've made and the tooling and the setup and the production process, you can't kind of turn that off and on particularly quickly. So that's a relatively stable issue there. But you can see that there's often a, a lack of synchronization between the orders and the deliveries. So that's another problem that we have in forecasting. Now, the final example here <coughs> concerns my old company, Airbus, and I want to refer back to the 20-year forecast that Airbus made from year 2000 and take a look at what the view was in the year 2000 of the A380 market. I'm here on, on dangerous territory, um, but I have to say at the outset that what I'm about to say is, is no criticism of my former colleagues in Airbus at all. It's simply to illustrate how difficult it is to come up with uh, a forecast in, over such a long period of time. So this is the extract from it. And you hear <coughs> that the, the chart which Airbus produced said that six of the top ten large aircraft airports will be in Asia-Pacific. So in the list here, the blue ones are the ones in Asia-Pacific. There are two orange ones, which are in Europe, and two uh, green ones, which are in North America. And the numbers there represent the number of very large aircraft that Airbus believed would be operating in and out of these different airports. Now, <coughs> The important message is in the bottom there. It says in 2019, hey, that's now, um, more than half of the world's fleet of 1,235 very large aircraft will be used on flights from just the top 10 airports. Now, it's easy to be wise after the event, that's for sure. But there are two major issues here. The first one is what's missing. Please, someone shout it out and put us all out of our misery. What's not there? Yes, thank you. <laughs> no, it's not there. But 
the, but of course, Emirates existed in, in 2000. It had already it had about 45 airplanes in 2000. But I think the second thing which is rather stunning about this is the number, 1,235. Well, honestly, it's, it's nowhere near that. It's, a, it's a, obviously a very dis great disappointment. So how could this be so wrong? Just imagine what would have happened if Emirates had not existed. Then the position for the A380 would be even worse than it is in this picture, right? Now, in the same year, Boeing came up with their forecast, and they didn't produce a chart. They just had a sentence. Uh, two, really. They had the market for very large airplanes is small. And then they said, the projected requirement for airplanes, uh, airplanes of 500 seats or greater was estimated to only 330 passenger jets over the study period. Even that was an overestimate. So, again, these are, these are simply points to in indicate how difficult it is to forecast. And to conclude, there's another uh, uh, forecaster here. This is Adam Pulaski, who's the senior vice president of Avitas. And he famously said a couple of years ago at an air finance conference in Dublin that the most accurate way of forecasting air travel was to use the monkey throwing darts. And of course, everyone laughed. But he was actually being serious. At least he was being honest about it. So, what the conclusion? Well, I would say it's impossible. At least it's impossible to forecast accurately over a long period of time. That is my conclusion. And is this an art or a science, which is the question we're trying to answer here? Well, I believe that that is an art. Forecasting is an art. So, let's move on to another one. The passenger experience. Oh. Um, and for that, I'm going to refer again to John Newhouse's book, The Sporty Game, and read you another extract. And he says this. Most passengers find nothing exotic or memorable in an airline flight. The experience can be, and frequently is, disagreeable. The seating is becoming denser as airlines try to offset rising operating costs by adding rows of seats. And there is a trend towards slightly narrower and lighter seats, even though people are becoming gradually larger. That's what he said. And this was written nearly 40 years ago. And the same thing can be said today, precisely. Because as you would doubtless know, airlines not just low-cost airlines, but major network carriers are going through a process of densification, trying to put more seats into the fuselage. And I'm going to demonstrate to you in a moment um, the impact of that from an economic point of view. But, first of all, you've got to look at this. These are my knees. And I'm sitting in an Emirates 777 about to fly from Shanghai to Dubai. On that particular flight, I contracted a blood clot, I, I had a deep vein thrombosis. And I was in economy class because, well, uh, I was traveling for business actually, but, uh, but the company we, we were working for did not, could not afford to put us in the business class, so in economy class I was. And I think that's another risk that we face. The concept of densification may be very valuable in terms of producing more profits for airlines, but putting passengers into difficult situations um, may be uh, problematic. And, but this, you know, again, I'm not criticizing Emirates, I'm just pointing out that if you're flying long distances uh, in economy class, there are some risks, uh, health risks associated with that. 
So we would expect, wouldn't we, airlines to declare that the passenger experience is important when they're choosing aircraft. Right? Wrong. Because <clears throat> this is a, an extract from a, um, a PhD thesis which involved surveying a large number of airlines about the criteria they use for airline aircraft choice. Now, I'm not going to go through every one, but just to briefly point, on, point to some of them, there's a lot of stuff in there about cost, obviously. There's stuff about uh, financial returns, maintenance costs, engine selection, avionics, all the technical things that are there. You have to look hard to find things that are very specific to the passenger experience. Okay, you've got, for example, high revenue generation, but uh, well, that's not really it, is it? Then you've got um, interior configuration flexibility. That's pretty important, but again, it's not really focusing on the passenger, is it? And right at the bottom, you've got those three little letters, IFE, in-flight entertainment, which I guess is of interest to passengers. But it is interesting that despite the fact that the, that the, the configuration of aircraft is such a vital part of the fleet planning process, when it comes down to actually making the decision, the things that drive that are not necessarily the cabin at all, according to this work here. It is actually other things. Of course, the cabin is important, but in fact, the real factors that airlines use to make their decision and recommendations for buying aircraft are on this slide here. So, the passenger experience, well, I'd say that is also an art, by the way. So let's go on to another one and look at economics. Uh, now we're getting into the real issues. Now it's a big subject, but I just want to focus on one thing to simply to illustrate to you just how powerful the seating density of an aircraft can be. Now we know that a lot of airlines around the world are trying to put an additional seat row in their single-line airplanes. And this is the same for Boeing and Airbus aircraft, and it's the same for low-cost carriers as well as major carriers. So let's just imagine that we're going to do that and try to place some kind of value on these seats. But the first question we have to ask is, well, how many of these seats are we likely to fill on a regular basis? So I'm going to be very conservative now and say, let's imagine we can sell half of them on a regular basis all the time, 50%. So on that basis, I'm going to assume that the aircraft will be flying four sectors a day, which again is quite conservative because I would now expect single-aisle airplanes to fly more than four sectors, but I'm being conservative here. So that means 14, 60 sectors a year, and if we assume that we get half of those seats in the extra row, this means that we have 4,380 seats per aircraft that we can fill and sell at the end of the year. Agreed? Okay. Now, I'm now going to assume a fleet size of 20, which is pretty small for some airlines, but I'm, again, I'm just being conservative to make the point. Let's say 20 airplanes. This means that the number of seats per year is 87,600. Okay, with me so far? Straightforward arithmetic. Now, here is Wembley Stadium. And Wembley Stadium, so I'm told, has a capacity of 90,000 people for a match. So this means that with the scenario I've just presented, with adding that extra seat row, you can fill Wembley Stadium at the end of the year. That is what I'm saying. Now, I also have an estimate for the net profit per passenger in 2018, 
And that value was $12.89. And that is, I, I suggest, quite an accurate figure. So they, they have surveyed this and they have calculated that the net profit, not the costs or the revenue, the net profit is $12.89 per passenger for the whole industry in 2018. So this means that we can convert those seats into a profit of $1.1 million. Now, of course, the aircraft is flying for more than a year, so typically we might expect a 15-year period where the airlines and aircraft is in service, so that means, well, there's almost $17 million worth there. This is the power of it. This is the extraordinary power of um, adding a seat. This is why the airlines are rushing to do this. So is this an art of science? Well, I think it's a bit of both, actually. I think it's, it is a, a bit of an art. Certainly, it's an art in selling it to passengers, but I think it is also a science because the economics are very clear. So that's what I would say. Now, moving on, what about balancing supply and demand, and how do we, how do we manage all that? Well, I just want to point to... Um, the fact that load factors are not as great as they might first appear. In fleet planning, it has to be the case that you're trying to suggest a mix of aircraft which has the highest possible load factor. So matching the aircraft to the market would seem to be an important thing to do. But I just want to again point out the fragility of the economics. So what we're seeing here are two curves. There's the red one, which is the uh, weight to load factor, and there's the orange one, which is the break-even load factor. So let me just define those terms. Weight load factor is a combination of passenger load factor and cargo load factor. The passenger load factor we know is about in the mid-80s, something like that, 83%, and we know also that cargo load factors are much lower because of the seasonality of cargo traffic and the, and the fact that it's unidirectional in many cases. So that's about 50%. Put them together and you get something like about 68.5%. The break-even point is, well, how many seats or how much cargo do you have to sell so that your revenue is exactly equal to your costs? You have to be about the break-even point. So the numbers here show the profitability or loss of the airlines over this period. And you can see that in the last four years or so, the profits have been extraordinary for the entire industry compared to the earlier times. And yet, the profitability does not necessarily mean significantly higher load factors. What we see here is that the load factors have certainly grown, but the gap between them is only about five percentage points. In other words, today, the industry is generating load factors which are just 5% above the break-even point, which is the point where you don't make any money at all. And I've just been saying that the airline industry has never been so profitable. So if you lose 5% load factor, it means that you are compromising the profitability of the business. It's that fragile, which is why selecting the aircraft is such an important issue. So let's imagine the two extremes of how this works in fleet, from a fleet planning perspective. First of all, <clears throat> I'm just going to show you here a mythical airplane with a payload range diagram. So we have a, the payload versus the range, and this is the classic uh, three-sided payload range diagram, and there's a green dot there, which is the point where you can achieve a certain range with the maximum possible payload in the airplane. So beyond that, you have to sacrifice payload in order to carry more fuel to fly further. 
And underneath, I've drawn the unit cost curve, <coughs> which um, declines, in other words, gets better and better the further you fly, to a point when you begin to sacrifice payload to fly further. In that case, the unit cost curve actually begins to rise. So that's what we call the bottom of the bath in economics. So you know, I would say that the optimum range for the airplane would be where the green dot is. And so when we're designing airplanes, this is what we would term the design point. It's the optimum point in terms of payload and range. So let's just hold that in our minds and look at what happens when you have a homogeneous style of network. Now this would be where you have a hub airport and you have a number of routes emanating from that hub and they are all relatively equidistant to each other. They all have relatively same, the same amount of traffic involved. So we can draw a circle around the longest and the shortest routes and the distance between them is not very great. This is exactly the kind of model that the low-cost carriers have understood and perfected. In other words, what the LCCs do is, <clears throat> is bring the market to the aircraft. What they do is formulate a very, very good and efficient operating network, and then they price it attractively so that people will actually fly on the services. So this is the kind of thing that Ryanair have done in Europe very successful, successfully, and also the Asian carriers as well. My wife and I were in Carcassonne a number of years ago, which is the airport for Toulouse for the LCCs, and Ryanair served Carcassonne from the UK and other places. And there was a 737 coming into land full of people, 189 people on the airplane. And when we inquired where the aircraft had come from, it had come from Poznan, which is an industrial city in the southwest of Poland. Now, you can't convince me that there's a natural market, tra air travel market, between Poznan and this medieval city in southwest France. No. But the reason why it's full is because it's cheap. And this is the great success of the LCCs. They've invented this thing called binge flying, which is what, they are, what people are doing. So we can't knock it because it's worked very well. And of course, when they standardize their fleet on the 737, what they're doing is trying to identify routes that are as close as possible to the 737's best operating range. They can't do it perfectly, but they can get close to it. So in other words, you can have a single type in this kind of, this kind of network, <clears throat> and with all the, 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 the advantages which go with that in terms of uh, uh, productivity of, um, of crew training and uh, utilization of the asset and so on. And if we were to now transpose that green onto the payload range diagram, that's where we want to be, around the design point as close as possible. And this is why the LCCs have become so successful, by the way. And it's choosing the right aircraft type and, and in fact, driving the market to that aircraft. Now, let's look at the other point of view, the heterogeneous network. Well, obviously, this is completely different, because here you may have a hub airport and a variety of routes emanating from that hub. Some of them are short, some of them are long, some of them, some of them have lots of traffic represented by the thick lines, and some of them have less traffic by the thin lines. Obviously, if we were to measure the shortest and the longest, we would have a very significant difference between the two, clearly. So this obviously drives airlines to go for multiple types of airplanes, but of necessity. So <clears throat> I think you can probably see where I'm heading with this argument here. Because if you're trying to find a fleet solution for an airline which has a homogeneous network, you have a much simpler task than you do here. So 
let's look at Air Canada, which has this kind of network. They've got routes uh, all over Canada, down to South America, down to North America, to on the, over the Pacific, and down to over to Europe. All, all kinds of routes, short and long. So it's a fleet of about 180 air aircraft, and obviously they would need a multiplicity of types. And it's, again, no criticism, but they would have, Within each uh, family, you get a commonality, of course, and I have to say that by next year, they're going to rationalize some of these types, which is, a, which is going to reduce the number of airplanes there. But it's a very typical outcome for an airline of that nature. So the real solution is, well, trying to reduce the number of aircraft types to a smaller number. So we could, for example, go from four types down to two, get rid of the, the big one and the very small one, and just go for, for two. And this is the concept of intelligent misuse of airplanes, which in fleet planning is an extremely important concept. You've got to figure out what, what would be the cost of having a lot of fleet types, which can serve perhaps a lot of different markets very well, against the synergies and the economics of having a small number of types in the fleet. That is the equation you have to work out. Because now, if we were to put, if we were to imagine we were using this yellow airplane on the long route and the short route, we would obviously be using the airplane away from its optimum economic point for a lot of the time. And this, I think, is an inevitability. And in building a fleet plan, in making the decision as to which aircraft type is appropriate, um, this is where the economists have to work very hard and understand the network. Because whereas in the previous example, we were driving the market. Uh, to the aircraft here, this type of model is driving the aircraft, is driving the market to the, uh, other way around, it's driving the aircraft to the market. So you're sizing it in a completely different way. Um, and to give you some practical examples there, this is um, data which comes from, uh, this, this particular one is from uh, the flight maps analytics, and it shows uh, the 787 um, uh, scheduled over a monthly period. And it's divided into 300 nautical mile intervals uh, on the x-axis. So you can see I've put a, 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 an arrow where the range of the maximum, the maximum structural payload would be found for the 787. And we've got the frequency of observations. So what you can see is that there are an enormous number of 787-8 aircraft scheduled on routes that are a long, long way from the optimum economic range of the airplane. And of course, in some cases, you're flying further than that, and we have to sacrifice payload uh, if you go beyond the, the red arrow there. And I've done the same for the 380, just to show that, um, it, uh, show an Airbus example. And again, you can see 380s are often used on very short missions. And in fact, uh, since, since this chart was produced, um, they've started, Airbus has started flying uh, to Muscat from Dubai, which is uh, very, very short indeed, just a couple of hundred, not even a couple of hundred miles. So why do they do this? Because the, the traffic's there. So it makes sense. And you, you can't always have the luxury of um, sizing an airplane to every, every market. And of course, we now know that uh, Emirates is now moving more in the direction of having a multiplicity of aircraft types. But nevertheless, it just shows, the, in, in practical terms, how airlines have to manage uh, the fleets on an operational basis. So is this an art or a science? Well, I'm going to say that is a science. That's for sure. So just to begin to wrap this up, I just want to summarize some key issues that I think are important in fleet planning. First of all, there are new business models that are driving 
the innovation of the cabin, that's for sure. We're seeing more and more premium economy, which has an, an impact on the cabin. We're seeing uh, perhaps the, the major carriers respond to the strategy of densification by the low-cost carriers by having lots of different fare classes. And this has an impact on the seating configuration of the airplanes. So, for example, Virgin Atlantic, you've, you've, got, you've got Virgin Classic, you've got Virgin Light, you've got Virgin Delight, you've got Premium, you've got Upper Class. You never used to have all that, but now the carriers are introducing more and more fare classes, and this may well feed through into having different uh, cabin arrangements within, within the airplane. So the aircraft has to be able to cope with all that. Um, Organisation of the process and communication is vital. And I have to say that I've come across so many airlines over, over my career where there has been a lack of process. And even today, when I'm occasionally asked to give advice to airlines on, fleet, on their decisions, I see that where people are trying to rush a decision, and sometimes the stakeholders, who could be like the government, uh, who don't really understand how the process works, they push for decisions, you can end up falling over your own feet sometimes and end up making no decision at all. So having that process, I think, is very, very important. And, of course, uh, communication within, within the people involved. And I think flexibility is taking on new meanings. You know, we always used to think about flexibility as being, well, like the commonality argumentation, the family, the family concept of having similar flight deck and common ratings for, air, for flight decks and that, those sort of things. But now I think airlines want flexibility in terms of delivery positions. So when you have a delivery position in a contract, that may not um, be sacrosanct. Maybe that can be renegotiated according to changes in the airline's philosophy. Sometimes airlines will want to perhaps change the type of airplane in the contract to another type of airplane. That's the kind of flexibility that airlines are demanding uh, today. Uh, revenue must have an equal weighting with operating costs. And there used to be a time when aircraft economics was always focused on the cost. But it's much more than that. And I think that the aircraft manufacturers have finally understood that from an airline point of view, the revenue is the thing which really counts. And you have to understand how do you actually fill those extra seats on the airplane. One of the big arguments and the big challenges is finding the right size of airplane for the market and putting the right number of seats in the airplane so that the load factors can be optimized. And uh, that can only be assessed correctly if you give revenue equal weighting. <clears throat> and then, <clears throat> lastly, technology and performance of competing aircraft converge in many size categories. And, and so what this means is that, let's be honest, a, a 737 and an A320, they're not so far apart from each other in terms of capacity or range. So there are reasons why you may want to go for one or the other, or, or in fact, both. Um, they have a dual, suppo dual supply strategy to really put more pressure on the manufacturers to give you better pricing. So there are lots of strategic reasons that can be used to take advantage of that. So, of course, other decision criteria emerge apart from the pure technology and performance of the, air of the aircraft. So, now, it's voting time. And I, I came here with a question. Is fleet planning an art or a science? Um, now, come on, you're going to participate in this because you have an election coming up in a few weeks' time, so you need some practice. So on each seat, you will find two bits of coloured paper, and I'm going to ask you in a minute 
to hold up the one that you think is closest to the answer I'm looking for, is think telling an arterial size. So don't hold up two, okay? And don't steal somebody's, somebody else's if there's no one sitting in the seat. And just think about it for a moment. Is it predominantly an art or a science? So if it's an art, I want you to hold up a red one. And if you think it's a science, I want you to hold up a green one. Are you all ready? Okay. Three, two, one, vote. Wow. Now, I would, I would say, I have to say, I have to say, I think it's a draw. I really do think it's a draw. <coughs> So thank you for that. Um, but in fact, that's not a bad result because Albert Einstein, he said that the greatest scientists are always artists as well. So you did well. So, okay, I suppose the problem for me is that I still don't know whether think planning is an art or a science. But let me tell you, before we get to the end, the answer to that little conundrum I was given by the head of British Airways, the chief engineer of British Airways in Toulouse. He gave me these two challenges. He said, I want you to calculate the performance by hand and then calculate it on the computer. And if, there was, if there's a deviation of more than 1%, we stop talking. So the number that I calculated by hand, it was in pounds in those days. It was 71,396. 71,309. That was, that was the, the fuel burn on this mission. When I ran the, the computer program, the answer, believe it or not, was 71,396. It was absolutely spot on. That has never happened to me ever again. And, but he was quite impressed. And so the sales director was very relieved because he said, Paul, you've saved the campaign at this stage. I didn't really, I don't think that was true. But one thing is for sure, I should have bought a lottery ticket on that day. That's, that's for sure. So, now I think we need to go back through that looking glass into the real world. So, the lights please, Gigi. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.